Are terrorists crazy? That's what we're going to be looking at today. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist and your terrorist therapist. I'm here to help you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. So, are, psych are psychiatrists crazy? That's a good one. <laughs> okay, talk about Freud would have a ball with that. Yes, actually, some psychiatrists are crazy. <laughs> don't, don't tell any of them that I said that. Um, and I'm certainly not referring to me, right? We're going to be looking at the, answering the question, are terrorists crazy? Now, you may have heard the term loon wolf terrorist. Um, that is a lone wolf where there is some suspicion of mental illness. So think about it. Does someone have to be crazy to be a terrorist? Are all terrorists crazy? This is like um, asking the question, if all murderers are crazy for taking human life. I don't know what you think about that. It's, we would like to believe, in a way, that somebody would have to be crazy in order to take a human life. And indeed, there are uh, some people, murderers, who do fit the criteria for um, an insanity defense, but it's actually very hard to prove. Now, um, you need to fit certain criteria, and that they, they are, at the time of the crime, the person has to have been so impaired by mental disease or defect that they did not know the nature or quality of the act. Or if they did know what they were doing, basically, they couldn't tell right from wrong. Now, um, murderers, especially uh, serial killers, but murderers are generally, I mean, to take a human life, you generally have to be a sociopath or a psychopath uh, these are generally people who have been terribly abused as children and have no empathy, have no uh, regard for human life, uh, have been so traumatized by the abuse that they were put through as a child. And I'm not just talking about, usually it's, it's very, very severe abuse. Um, and they, so their view of the world becomes skewed from a very early age. Now, thinking about terrorists, at first it doesn't seem like a terrorist would fit the definition to meet an insanity defense because typically terrorists are very purposeful. In other words, um, most of them are not so impaired by mental disease or defect that they didn't know the nature or quality of the act. In fact, of course, many of them plot the act for some time. And then if they did know the quality, okay, um, the question of telling right from wrong, they certainly do know that um, our society, at least, considers it wrong to commit a terrorist attack, to kill people, to injure people. They know that that's wrong, but they believe or they have been radicalized to believe in the um, terrorist ideology, the radical Islamist ideology. Um, the people who are radicalizing them twist the Quran and, um, and 
uh, brainwash them into believing that actually what they are doing is a good thing. It's the right thing. So, um, you know, terrorists typically will shout, Allahu Akbar, uh, God is great. And they seem to take great pleasure in killing and injuring as many people as they can. They are strongly believe that they're on a mission to please their God. They think they'll be rewarded in heaven with 72 virgins and so on. And even when these terrorists know that they will be killed in the process themselves, they still strongly believe in their, why they're doing it and uh, are willing to be a suicide bomber, for example, going into a crowd and detonating their belt. And certainly they know that if, uh, unless it doesn't go off, unless they screw it up, um, they are gonna go up and smoke just like the rest of the people around them. And then of course, there's this new version of, of suicide by cop. That's what I call it, the new the terrorist version of suicide by cop. Um, when people, you know, people who aren't terrorists, um, just to explain suicide by cop, people who are very depressed and want to commit suicide and want to go out with a bang, want the whole world to know uh, how depressed they are, how angry they are, how people did them wrong, how, and if they don't perhaps have uh, the courage to commit suicide in some other way, <laughs> Not that that, I mean, to have more courage, you would go get treatment, psychiatric treatment. But anyhow, some people go um, to a, to, into a police station, for example, with and scream things or act irrational, you know, make the police, all they have to do, <laughs> and it's not much these days, uh, but all they have to do is make the police, one policeman, several policemen believe that they are a danger, that the policeman's life is in danger, uh, then they, the police shoot him. And uh, that's suicide by cop. Well, there's now this new version of, uh, for terrorists, suicide by cop, because terrorists seem to be more and more often uh, targeting cops. In fact, there was something in Paris just this past week. So they know, though, that if they come up to a cop, several cops with a gun to shoot a cop, um, that there are going to be other cops um, who shoot them. So, in other words, it's not that they uh, don't know the nature or quality of their act, the terrorist attack, or that they couldn't tell right from wrong because they know that our society, Western society, thinks that it's wrong, but they have their um, determination, their reasons for why they're going to go through with this act. So then we need to look at the other side. What about people who have real mental illness, who are lured into terrorism for other reasons, not because it's not that they um, have grown up, um, you know, fitting the, fitting the typical kind of terrorist background. Now, terrorists, of course, do often have uh, come from broken homes. I've, I've spoken in previous podcasts and about um, uh, specific terrorists who have uh, caused attacks in recent years. And when I put them on my couch and analyze them, of course, they often come from, uh, if not always, come from uh, a broken home, a dysfunctional family, and so on. They aren't necessarily mentally ill. And by that, I mean uh, schizophrenic or manic depressive. Those are the two main psychoses 
the mental illnesses where the people are out of touch with reality. So I'm talking about people with these real mental illnesses, schizophrenia or manic depressive illness or some other um, odd psychosis, and they are vulnerable to becoming terrorists in two different ways. First of all, they are vulnerable to terrorist propaganda or brainwashing because they are very marginalized by society. They um, are stereotyped, you know, and, and discarded by society. Um, they have problems with reality testing, knowing what is real and what isn't because they're psychotic. And so if terrorists um, feed them their propaganda, it's, it, it, it's very easy for a mentally ill person to believe it. Uh, and you have to think about how people, generally people with these psychoses are not having, not in the midst of a social group, they don't have a lot of friends that they can chat about these things with. So the second reason for why people with real mental illness are lured into terrorism and commit terror attacks is when they actually get delusions about terrorism incorporated into their psychosis because of our world today, because of how every day each of us, whether we're mentally ill or not, each of us um, is exposed to countless reminders of the existence of terrorism and terrorists. I mean, obviously, television, radio, the internet, where um, podcasts like this, we are, we are bombarded by it. And so are people who are mentally ill. So, for example, years ago, um, back in the day, there used to be more delusions about uh, Jesus Christ, people who were psychotic thinking that they were Christ. And now, there are more delusions of people thinking they are Al-Qaeda or ISIS members, or that, or that ISIS or Al-Qaeda are choosing them, singling them out, picking them because they're special to create a terror attack. It is very easy when someone's mind is jumbled um, to incorporate things in their, in their environment, in their daily life, thing, particularly if it's things that have very strong emotional connections. And, you know, we're all of us. Um, I mean, some of us are in more denial than others, but we are all of us being affected, knowing, you know, out there, uh, there is this danger of terrorism. So let me give you, I'm going to talk today, I'm going to give you three stories. Um, once upon a time, once upon a time, there were these three ter terrorists. Uh, these three stories illustrate the different ways that mental illness can interact with the concept of becoming a terrorist. And one story is of a man who was stopped before he committed a terrorist act, a mentally ill man who was stopped before committing a terrorist attack. One is a man who was believed to be a terrorist, but he was actually psychotic and um, not really uh, doing the crime that he did because he believed in the in radical Islamic terrorism. 
And then one person who actually committed a terrorist attack, who, who was mentally ill, but actually did go on to commit a terrorist attack. So let's, let's start with the, we'll kind of build it up here. <laughs> let's start with the man who was stopped before he committed a terrorist attack, um, but who was mentally ill. Now, this is a story that was um, written about in regard to a man in uh, Great Britain. And he has said, I thought Al-Qaeda was recruiting me. That was what his delusion was. He thought he was supposed to commit terror attacks because he thought Al-Qaeda had chosen him um, to be a terrorist and to you know, follow in his footsteps or carry out what he wanted, what Al-Qaeda wanted. So this is a man, and I, I, it's, you know, this is in the press, so I'm not telling you his name out of school. His name is uh, Amir. And he um, started now, and he, this is 10 years later. And he's now actually, uh, you know, he received treatment, and he is now an evolutionary biologist at the University of Oxford. So he is looking back on what happened to him and talking about it. Um, and this gives us great insight into how important it is. And that's why I'm telling you all three of these stories and trying to tease out the differences between people who are really mentally ill and, and may become terrorists or may commit a terrorist attack and people who are just <laughs> real terrorists and, um, and not starting out from a, an underlying mental illness. So Amir uh, says that in 2007, he was a know-it-all teenager. He was in his first year of university and he had what he describes as romantic ideas about intellectuals. He smoked weed every day. He had tried magic mushrooms, and he listened to a lot of classic rock. And he says, I was sending really strange texts and emails to a few people. They were like, oh, he must be stoned, must be high. You know, they thought that that's why he was saying these things. They didn't suspect mental illness at first. Um, he is a British citizen of Syrian Palestinian heritage. He grew up in Saudi Arabia and Jordan where his family still lived when he moved to London to start university. So, you know, I mean, that's the background. If you, if um, this would be typical of someone who you might expect to then become a terrorist, especially coming to London and being alone. Um, he only had one grandmother there and uh, otherwise he was alone. Of course, you know, the culture shock and everything. This is some of the reasons why people, people who immigrate, uh, we've seen that actually in the t some of the terrorists uh, who committed attacks recently, how they were immigrants to England and how um, they're where they grew up. And of course, this, he, he was a little different in that he was at university, but still it's, you know, it's culture shock and it, it can make you vulnerable to, um, to being um, a little confused and, and, uncomfortable and uh and you know to think things that you wouldn't have thought if you were in your own home so he said 
all the 80s and 90s rock music that I liked, which was probably all written in drug-addled states, uh, they shared these metaphors, keys, doors, getting to the other side. It started to build up. I believed there was this secret, and by taking acid shrooms, you would unlock an ability to access this other side. So this rock metaphor soon became a full-blown conviction that there was a parallel universe that, to him, <laughs> he called it three, which was the mobile network that he was on at the time. And he said, in this other world, we're telepathic. And essentially, this telepathy, unaided, doesn't have a long range. But what three does is it acts as a mobile phone carrier for the normal world. And then in the world of three, you can use it to extend the range of your telepathic abilities. So he, this was all his, this is, you know, this is typical schizophrenic thinking. And um, this, in the early stages anyway, um, people who are becoming schizophrenic or it's becoming, beginning to manifest, schizophrenia and manic depressive illness uh, are both genetically, people become genetically predisposed to these illnesses. When there are people in their family, it doesn't have to be parents, it could be a long lost uncle, but when there's this genetic material in the family, uh, children can inherit it. Now, it doesn't mean that every child who inherits the genes for schizophrenia and manic depressive illness become that, manifest that. It depends upon if they're under certain stressors. Um, and so, for example, uh, with Amir, you know, now moving from the Middle East to London on his own, going to university, there was obviously a lot of stress on him. And so that caused this genetic predisposition to manifest itself. And he began to hear messages. Uh, he said it was a kind of Osama bin Laden figure. Now remember, this is 2007. So this was before ISIS was more predominant than Osama bin Laden and, and Al-Qaeda. So he said it was a kind of Osama bin Laden figure with a radical Islamist look, old army fatigues, a big beard, and so on. Um, now, when he was, uh, what was interesting is that although he grew up in these religious countries, he decided that he was an atheist when he was still a teenager. And um, he, as he was, you know, in London now, going back to when he was in London, he and started falling into this uh, mental illness, manifesting mental illness. He um, had these delusions, hallucinations and delusions that were centering on his mobile phone. I would, he says, I was hearing messages as clear as you, can, as you can hear my voice. It sounds as if somebody was in the room, but they're not physically there, and it's not your voice. That's a description, actually, of what schizophrenic, how schizophrenic people uh, hear their, their auditory hallucinations. Um, so, let's see, he, you know, he talks about, he, he kind of, again, tried to explain some of the ideas that he was having by thinking about, you know, 
trying to find some rational explanation, and he was trying to say that really isn't faith, religion, a delusion. Uh, he said, how many people say, I spoke to God last night? And then he said, George Bush, George Bush did it on national television. He said, God told him to invade Iraq, and nobody batted an eye. <laughs> so eventually, um, Amir started getting worried that um, he was going to give in to Al-Qaeda, give in to these hallucinations. Uh, he was having auditory and some visual hallucinations and these delusions uh, that he was called upon by, by Al-Qaeda to commit terror attacks. And he was worried that he was going to give in. And he decided to turn himself in to the police before he acted on what he was being directed to. So um, he showed up at the police station and nothing, that, you know, there was just, there was a receptionist there and she said, come back tomorrow, it's a Sunday. And then he eventually went to people in his university and he was eventually brought to a psychiatric hospital and he was, um, he was treated. He was given, um, you know, antipsychotic medication, and hopefully he was given therapy as well. Presumably he was, since now he is um, seems to be free of psychosis. I would presume he is still on medication. But um, and so he he says that he feels lucky that he received treatment in time. And this is he wonders how the media would have reported it if his delusions had caused him to actually commit a terror attack. So he said, um, he's imagining that the headline would be British Muslim, because that's what I'm going to be. Never mind, I stopped believing in God at age 12. From an Arab background, you know, the headlines will, would go on to say from an Arab background who grew up in the Middle East, politically outspoken and opinionated. You know, these are the, these are the um, stereotypical things that the, <laughs> that the headlines say. Uh, was seen in Hyde Park Corner shouting about Palestine, Israel, has emails of all sorts of opinions, acted weird for several weeks. And then he said, if I ran into a crowded space, shouted Allahu Akbar. So, you know, <laughs> that's all true. Now, um, let me, now I'll give you the story of, now fortunately, of course, the, the moral of this story is, but fortunately, he did manage to get help, and um, he was stopped from committing a terror attack. Now, this is the story of a man, also in England, who um, was believed to be a terrorist, but then ultimately turned out to be mentally ill, and, um, but was mistaken for a terrorist, and you'll hear why. Um, his name is Muhyiddin Mir. He's 30 years old. He was a British, he is, a British Somali man. And he ran into a tube station in London with a knife. And he attempted to murder a guy. And he was heard shouting, this is for Syria. So, you know, all the earmarks of a terrorist. When he was arrested, in fact, the police found images of ISIS on his phone. So, there, you know, that was kind of a slam dunk. He's a terrorist. Well, at his trial for attempted murder, there were two psychiatrists 
who uh, testified on his behalf and said that he had been previously hospitalized for psychosis and about a year before the attack had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and given antipsychotic medication. Now, of course, the problem with people um, who are psychotic, schizophrenic or manic depressive, uh, also called bipolar, is that at some point, well, two things. One, they're not followed carefully enough, you know, given uh, psychiatric visits closely enough after they get out of the hospital. And then also, um, they start to believe that they don't need the medication. You know, once they get off the medication, the psychosis come back, comes back. The medication isn't a cure. It's not like an antibiotic uh, curing an infection. It's just a temporary band-aid, basically, um, to help people not show the psychotic symptoms. But that's why therapy is so important, not just to give any patient medication and not give them therapy. Even people with psychoses need psychotherapy as well to get to the root of their problems, help them to understand their psychosis better, and so on. So this man, Muhyiddin, believed that he was being followed because he was paranoid schizophrenic. And um, his brother said that four months before the terror attack, he started calling him up and saying odd things, but not radical Islamist things, things like he's seeing demons. And so what did Mir's brother do? Uh, he called the police to try to get his brother help, but the brother didn't get help. I mean, he, the, the, he, you know, the police, or the, I don't know where, where he fell between the cracks, but he wound up not getting help. And that's kind of the point here, how important it is to get all these people help in time. So he was found guilty of attempted murder rather than, in the end, rather than terrorism. Although, of course, all the headlines at the beginning blared that he was a terrorist. So he was sentenced to life in a psychiatric hospital rather than prison. And... Um, and he was called in the papers, the Daily Mail called him a jihadi attacker in its headline. So, okay, so now we've, we've looked at a guy who, unfortunately, it helped, of course, that he was in university. And when he reached out to the police, nothing, he didn't get help. But when he reached out by causing a, a stir, he caused a whole big scene at the university. And they did uh, send him to a psychiatric hospital. And he did get help. And uh, he didn't commit an attack, and he's now uh, doing well, actually, in, um, in, a, in a university, working in a university. Now we go to a, the third story of a man where the, um, it doesn't have such a happy ending. And this story you know something about, you'll remember it. I'm talking about the January 2017 uh, Fort Lauderdale Airport shooting. Remember that? That was Esteban Santiago Ruiz. He was the shooter. And this shooting um, caused five people to die, and there were approximately 40 people who were injured. Some of them were shot, and some of them were injured in the stampede that occurred um, because of the shooting, because of the terror attack and people. I actually happened to catch that live on the internet when that was happening. It was, it was horrible, and in fact, there is a podcast about this if you look in the earlier podcasts. So now this is a story 
of a man who was mentally ill, but he didn't get the help he needed in time to prevent a terror attack. He uh, visited an FBI field office in Anchorage, Alaska, where he was living at the time, in November of 2016, so just a few months before the January 2017 terror attack that he committed. He told them in the FBI office that the United States government was controlling his mind and making him watch videos by ISIS. And he, uh, now this is, that is a pathognomonic or a typical sign of a schizophrenic. Schizophrenics, many, most schizophrenics, it's, it's like one of the most typical symptoms where you feel as though people are controlling your mind. Um, and when he said that it was, the, the government was making him, watch, making him watch ISIS videos, that was a way that he was able to try to avoid, again, unconscious in his crazy mind. He was, he was uh, gradually becoming more and more schizophrenic. Um, and so in his mind, he was um, feeling as if he was being made to watch these videos and being made to convert or to become radicalized into a terrorist. And he said that he was hearing voices in his head telling him to commit acts of violence. Now, I don't know what more he could have, what more, what, what more clues he could have given the FBI um, to tell them that he was a terror attack about to happen, just waiting to happen. Now, the police, the FBI people, to their credit, uh, did send him to a psychiatric hospital. And really, that's where the... Um, biggest mistake was made. They admitted him for a, an evaluation, but um, they weren't able, unless they were going to then involuntarily commit him after uh, 48 to 72 hours, they had to either commit him involuntarily or to let him go. And they mistakenly, very mistakenly, chose to let him go. Now, again, obviously... <laughs> These, I'm sorry to say it, but these um, shrinks were idiots because, um, again, anybody who, you know, it's like Psychiatry 101 to learn that um, these symptoms that he was presenting, even if it was nothing more than what I just mentioned, uh, those are certainly serious enough clues to make you hospitalize him involuntarily and treat him. Um, but since he wasn't committed involuntarily, when he got out after 48 to 72 hours, the, he was then given back his handgun by the Alaska police, who, you know, this was all compounded, one problem after the other. And so he got his handgun back, and then he got on, you know, a little while later, eight months later, he got on the plane, and he landed in Fort Lauderdale, and he um, created this attack. And I was just reading about how the five people who died in the attack were passing through Fort Lauderdale to begin cruises with their family. Now, it just so happens that I did that very thing. When I went on a cruise with my family, we passed, one of the times we went on cruises, we passed through Fort Lauderdale. So I could have been the one who was shot in this attack.
I mean, that was some years ago, but that's not the point. <laughs> the point is that we need, it is a very tricky and delicate technique or uh, thinking process to be able to tease out who are the people who are the typical terrorists, whether they maybe had, you know, clearly most likely had um, dysfunctional families and psychological traumas in their background, but they weren't necessarily mentally ill. They wouldn't necessarily meet the criteria for, um, for an insanity defense. Uh, mainly they are driven by their belief in their mission and in, in radical Islamist terrorism. So there's that group, but then there are also this other group who are really mentally ill and who, if they had gotten proper treatment early enough, lives would have been saved. So that is what we need to take from all of this. There is not enough, not enough effort, not enough training for police and courts and even psychiatrists specifically on this issue of telling who is who, which people actually are mentally ill, need to be treated, and, and of this group who are mentally ill, which ones who you know may well have been watching ISIS propaganda on the internet, for example, and they become loon wolves, um, but they're vulnerable, especially vulnerable to the propaganda and the brainwashing because they have an underlying mental illness. Again, if these people were treated properly and soon enough, they would not have gone on to carry out the attack. It's not that they were really believers. Um, in other words, had they not been mentally ill, they would likely not have become radicalized to become terrorists. And then, of course, the um, people who have these delusions and hallucinations, certainly um, they are waving red flags about how they need to be treated. And it is up to the psychiatrists and the police and the courts, and preferably the psychiatrists and the police, to, uh, to um, identify these people before they ever wind up in court uh, and to save people's lives. Well, that's a lot for you to think about, a lot for society to think about. We need to really make more of an effort to make these, these subtle distinctions um, to find out what is going on so those people who are mentally ill can be treated and lives can be saved. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. Thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show. Um, my I'm going to give you my website and Facebook um, ways to contact me. Uh, but I, first, I want to tell you that my new book, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror, is very near its uh, launch date, uh, which will be uh, for 9-11, the anniversary this year. And you can find out more about that and about me, and you can listen to more podcasts and blogs and so on by going to my website, www.terroristtherapist.com. And uh, by going to my Terrorist Therapist Facebook page, if you just put in The Terrorist Therapist on Facebook, you will be directed 
to that page. So thank you again for listening. You've been listening to The Terrorist Therapist Show. <laughs>